welcome to Season 9 of the Lit and Lucid Podcast. Here are your hosts, Lucy and Jared. Welcome everybody to the Lit and Lucid Podcast. We are here in Episode 98. You guys, we are so close to 100. Thank you all for joining us through this Lit and Lucid journey. We are grateful for all of our listeners and our guests on the show. Today, we have a special guest from Canada. We have Narbe Alexandrian. He is the CEO of Canopy Rivers. Uh, the, C- the Canopy Rivers is a venture capital firm specializing in cannabis focused on building sustainable businesses. They focus on investing in various companies from seed to sale, including wellness products, production, processing, phar- uh, pharmacy and biotech, software, data, and much more. Previously, uh, Narbe was a venture capitalist at Omer's Ventures, one of the most prominent technology firms, capital funds in Canada. During his tenure, Narbe helped fundraise for two funds, which was over $520 million in capital, sourced and led multiple debt equity financing, and acted as a board observer for several portfolio companies. So I know that he's taken a lot of different background experience that he had bringing that over to Canopy Rivers now as the CEO there in Canada. And we're just excited to have you on the show. Um, We've only had one other guest from Canada, so it's really great to have you here today. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Awesome. Well, let's get started. Um, I know you came from a technology background. Why did you switch over to investing in cannabis companies? Yeah, that's a great question. I I really did see a lot of similarities between the technology industry and the cannabis industry. Both are very high growth industries. The technology industry, depending on what piece of the value chain you look at, is growing between anywhere from 10% to uh, 50% per year. And then you had cannabis, which, which has been growing from between 80% to 100% per year, depending on on what state or country you look at. So um, both were high growth industries. But I did see a dissimilarity in was how the capital structure of cannabis was versus what you were seeing in the tech industry. The tech industry, you look at how venture capital has played out. It's been around since the late 70s, early 80s, and has gone all the way through until today. And you have some very smart minds. You have individuals who have 10, 20 years, 30 years of investment experience within the technology space. On the cannabis side, you see something completely different. At the time that I joined, which was 2018, there were a number of family offices that were investing in company in, in companies. Uh, there weren't many institutional investors or large-scale investors uh, putting money into the, the industry, and it was mostly just angels and, and family and, and rich family offices that, that were wanting to get into this game. And because of the vice related to to cannabis because of the stigma, because of the legalization implications, both in Canada and the U.S. at the time, this was pre-legalization cannabis, there wasn't much money going into it from sophisticated investors. So the idea there was that this looked exactly like technology did in can- technology investing did in Canada back in 2010-2011 when uh, a number of companies would emerge, they couldn't find capital in Canada, they'd get shipped off to, to Silicon Valley. Um, and, and we saw a massive brain drain in the tech sector back then until the venture capital funds in Canada started ramping up, and now no company needs to go to the U.S. anymore. The same type of uh, story could be played out for the cannabis industry where companies are forced too quickly to go public. So uh, when we looked at the industry, we said, well, a lot of these companies that are going public, they, they shouldn't be going public. They should be staying private. They should keep growing uh, behind the scenes until the point in time where they can naturally go into an M&A or naturally go into an IPO process. So 
the, the idea of, of where Canopy Rivers would go was to take a Silicon Valley mindset to investing in cannabis and investing in long-term investments where you can get a multiple of your capital out of the business without having to force any of these companies to, to go public too soon. That's interesting. Yeah. And I think, you know, we saw that wave, especially last year that, you know, there's already a handful of public companies in Canada and, and the U.S. was a little bit slower to that just because of the regulations. Um, but yeah, we we did see all that. And so what are the, what would be the advantages, I guess, to not going public is that, you know, you could, you know, reserve some of your finances a little bit more. You could appeal to a case of a higher valuation later on down the road. Or, or what are the advantages, I guess, to, to not going public? Yeah, I mean, the, the advantage, the main advantage of going public is liquidity. You have your investors that can get their money back and, and their return back. And you have access to, to the capital markets, which really worked well for cannabis companies probably up to April of 2019. And then it fell off a cliff uh, in, in terms of how, how that, like the capital for going public excuse me, look, the, the, the positives of staying private is that nobody's really seeing what's happening inside of the business. So you grow the business by a little bit, you might lose a customer or two, nobody really sees that. You can work on that. You can understand how your business model works. You can work on uh, maturing your business model before you go public and before everyone gets a view of everything that's going on. Yeah. At the same time, the public markets view your company uh, in, in a short-term landscape. So every quarter as you release earnings they, they, they look at you and say well what have you done for me this quarter how have things changed this quarter and you have between reporting periods you have two months maybe maybe like if you stretch that to three months because you do have to report ahead of time uh you don't have that much time to to really make a change within how your company looks uh likewise like when you're, when you're just building out your business you're thinking of the long term not the short term so when the public market is looking in the short term but as a as a new entrepreneur, budding entrepreneur, no pun intended, you're looking at the long term, there's a misalignment of what your shareholder is looking for and, and what you should be doing uh, as, as a company. So in those circumstances, it's about staying private as long as possible. Um, the, the, the best investment that I can, uh, example that I can use is in my old shop when I was in technology at Omer's Ventures, we invested in a uh, in, in Shopify, which, which as you know, is... is um, handles a lot of the, the small business e-commerce uh, all across the world. Mm-hmm. And we went in early there. And at the time, they weren't ready to go public. They were still building their business. They were still building their business model. Uh, after a number of years, after three years of high growth, they got to a stage where uh, they, 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 were, uh, they knew what they were doing. They knew the business model at hand. They knew how to uh, take, take the customer from point A to point Z. And uh, they were ready to go public and really open themselves up and open up all their metrics to uh, analysts and investors to show them that this is the model we created and this is how we can create money for for the next uh, 10, 15 years, uh, whatever that forecast period would be. That's interesting. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That was, a, that was a great answer. I didn't expect that. Thank you. Um, so, you know, we talked about this a little bit in the pre-show, but obviously investments changed quite a bit in the past, geez, what, four months now going on five months with COVID. Um, and I think we're going to see some, you know, investments change, not just within, within cannabis, but all across, you know, every type of mainstream market there is. Um, there's also speculation that we're going into a recession. Um, so, you know, how has investment changed, I guess, with COVID? And then also the extra wrinkle that's kind of in that mix now is that cannabis has been deemed essential by a lot of local municipalities, especially here in the States. Um, and so that kind of lends credit, to, uh, you know, maybe legalization in the United States long term, and then also a change in worldview towards cannabis, where, you know, I think cannabis is being seen more as a medicinal 
product by a lot of different people. And so you kind of have those two different wrenches in the mix of, you know, we're entering recession. There's still a lot of speculation around how COVID's going to affect the economy. But then you also have a product that's been deemed essential and, and is kind of coming out of the shadows. You know, what does that do to your investment strategy now and, and down the road? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, COVID-19 was quite the, the, the black swan or an unprecedented event that we never predicted what it would happen. Uh, every year for all of our portfolio companies, we asked them uh, late in the year to late in the calendar year to come up with a budget for what that next year looks like. And never would we have thought for them to create a budget where we'd say, let's make revenue equal to zero and wow. see how you look in a year from now. Yeah. And can you survive the worst situation we've probably ever seen from a business standpoint of the entire economy halting for a few months and, and get through it? So uh, and, and, and no business plans for zero revenue. But at the time when COVID-19 was just kickstarting, that was the, the, the reality that we were looking at. So we looked at all of our portfolio companies and said, can you survive the next year without any revenue, without any government sub uh, subsidies or assistance, and get through it based on the cash reserve that you have right now? Uh, and if not, let's figure out what to do. And then after that, we, we start layering on the expect expected revenues and when do you think we're going to go into phase one and phase two and phase three and, 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 and so forth. What we did learn from COVID and the silver lining out of all of this is that up to that point in time, we did not know if cannabis was uh, a recession-proof sector or it was going to suffer and be cyclical with, with other products that were out there. Luckily, coming out of it right now or on the verge of coming out with it, depending on what, what geography you're in, uh, we've, we've seen that cannabis is recession-proof. So that, that is a sigh of relief for everybody who expected that to happen but didn't know if that was going to be the case or not. Mm -hmm. So now we know that no matter what, where the economy goes, up or down, left or right, we know that people are still going to be buying cannabis. And we've actually seen more cannabis purchases now than we have in the past, um, now as in dur during the recession or during the, the COVID-19 yeah. uh, pandemic. So we know it's recession-proof. Now, how do we look at new businesses going forward? Well, a lot of businesses now have cash issues because of the fact that retail was closed for quite some time or there's not enough foot traffic because people don't want to bump into other people. Uh, there's a lot of movement over the e-commerce companies. So we're seeing a huge drive in terms of value for e-commerce and software infrastructure that, that powers uh, um, sales that, 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 that can be done without having face-to-face -face contact. Mm -hmm. We're seeing less foot traffic go into retail, so a lot of retailers are having trouble uh, withstanding the, the the storm while they still have to pay the same amount of rent. Yeah. Uh, but we're, we are seeing that the, the sales at the till are still growing. So let's take a step back here. So we, we know that it's recession-proof. We know what's winning and what's losing in this type of scenario. Now, where do we, where, where should an investor look to invest that next dollar? Well, we've, like, we, at Canopy Rivers, we, we've had the, the, the luxury of looking at over 2,200 pitches to date all across wow. the world. Uh, we have a, a database of 4,000, 4,500 entrepreneurs at any given time that we've, we've talked to, we've, we've understood their business models, we've understood how they see the industry and where things are going to go ahead. And we've taken all that and we've created what we call the wave theory or the industry evolution of cannabis. And for many geographers, and it's a very simplified model, and it gets very complex when you look at it from state to state or county to county or country to country. But from, from a high-level perspective, it really does apply for all geographies other than Israel. And the, the, way, the, the way that we see it is that cannabis will evolve, will evolve in five distinct steps. The first stage is cultivation. 
when a brand new geography or uh, state or county, sorry, state or, or or country is looking to legalize cannabis, cultivation is where the uh, where the most value is. Uh, so it's a very highly competitive application process, and the value of cultivation comes from the scarcity of licenses. So if you're if you're like True Leave and you're you're number one or number three license holder in Florida, you get a head start on everyone else. You have that first mover on everyone else. Right now, if you're a North American player looking to get into the cultivation space, it's a bit too late unless you can really come to the game with a very strong and compelling sustainable competitive advantage. So we move away from cultivation. Wave two is the ancillary industry, and these are the providers of products and services related to the broader cannabis economy. These businesses are subject to less risk, fewer rules, fewer regulations to buy to, so they're much easier to scale. Here we're talking about fertilizer companies, LED, software, e-commerce, last mile delivery, uh, extraction, uh, the picks and shovels of the cannabis industry. Many of the entrepreneurs we're seeing come into this industry are from large organizations. We've seen people coming from Google, from Uber, from Microsoft, from Unilever and Procter & Gamble and Nike. Um, and and they're, they're looking at the space as being, I don't want to farm, but I want to provide uh, the picks and shovels for how this industry goes from farming to the CPG side. Wave three is CPG. Uh, we, we think brands will dominate the industry, high margins in exchange for customer trust. The success will be determined by both mind share and the strength of distribution. Uh, we, I, I love to use the anecdote of Coke and Pepsi saying that they're not, uh, they're not popular because of their marketing budgets, they're popular because of distribution. You either go into a restaurant or convenience store or a fast food joint anywhere, you'll find a Coke and Pepsi, Coke or Pepsi product. Uh, depending on who got first dibs on it. So when we look at CPG, what we're looking for is creative brand building and really in-depth consumer knowledge. They really have obsession over what the customer wants and how they see the product. Way four is big pharma. Big Medical market is going to be the largest market, but there's not enough research that's been done to really solidify what that market looks like. We know that companies right now are working on clinching and locking in lucrative intellectual property to, to get that edge. We also know that the top nine medical conditions for cannabis is going to cannibalize uh, as much as $20 billion of pharmaceutical sales. Wow. And we also know that there's about 400 patents out there in North America alone, that majority of them are owned by the pharmaceutical giants of the world. So we know this is going to be a big sector, but it's going to take about five to 10 years to get through the clinical trials uh, to, to really prove out the, the pharma segment. And then the last wave, wave five, is called mass market. And, and we believe that as cannabis approaches maturity, there's going to be a small number of market leaders making the rules. This is going to be about 10 to 15 years from now. Private equity style rollups are going to take place. There's going to be a lot of consolidation. This is way after the U.S. Uh, legalizes cannabis. Uh, multinational cannabis companies are going to emerge, uh, and they're going to start rolling up brands and, uh, and assets globally. And, and like CPG, the largest market share is going to be about 30%. Uh, and we'll follow the, the, the 80-20 rule for the top 10 companies. So these are the five waves that we see. We joke around sometimes and say wave six is litigation because <laughs> once we, we get to mass market maturity, everyone starts fighting over that uh, I have this IP, I own this, and I own that, and that's my strain, and that's my genetic. Yeah. But we're, we're not there yet. Uh, but but um, we, we've seen it happen in alcohol. We've seen it happen in tobacco. Uh, it, it's happened quite enough times. Yeah, that's what's kind of interesting about this is that it, you know, it is following a similar path of alcohol and tobacco, and, and it, you probably know more, but one thing I think of is, you know, there's not like big, huge liquor store chains 
as much as, you know, there's more of a focus on the products. And I think what you said is, you know, the CPG and the focus on the products is kind of a stage maybe we're in right now. I think that's, you know, I'm looking at big pharma and it's, it's kind of a totally thing. So, you know, having that in mind, are you guys kind of shying away from investing so much in retail outlets and maybe investing more in like the software to facilitate the transaction and then, you know, investing in brands as like a way to kind of follow yeah. kind of the market transition, I guess, of, you know, alcohol. And I guess clearly in tobacco, there's tobacco shops, but it's not like there's branded or like mainstream tobacco shops. It's a focus on the products within those tobacco shops. Is that all true in cannabis still? Yeah, I mean, like if, if you look at uh, tobacco or alcohol or any other CPG brand out there, that there's there's a lot of there's a lot of value. So the least amount of value comes from the actual manufacturing of it because it's it, it's a bit of a race to the bottom. If you, if you just take out the packaging, you take out the logo, and you just look at the, the the product in its raw form, whatever it might be, shampoo or toothpaste or uh, or, or cannabis, the, the the product in its raw form without any labels, without any packaging has probably the lowest margin out there because it is a race to the bottom in terms of who can produce it for less. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then when you look at the brand itself, when you have a brand, when you have a logo attached to it, you have that loyalty and you have that affinity with the customer. And when you do have that, you get a nice margin off of it. However, you're spending a lot to hold on to that margin through marketing and, and you're also trying to send off competitors at the same time. And you have to be lucky in order to even get to the top five spot to, to actually make um, – uh, the, the financial success that you're looking for. Distribution is where a lot of the, the money is in. And I don't yeah. mean owning the retail store. I mean the ability to take brands and put them on the shelf through contracting out with each of the retail stores. When you look at the beer industry, or like the wine industry, the alcohol, the tobacco industry, mm-hmm. distributors uh, have, have historically made a lot of margin off of it. And they don't take any brand risk by doing that. Nobody even knows the name of these companies. Mm-hmm. And many of them stay private. On the retail side, there's, there's difficulty there because as this industry progresses and, it, and it, it's still fragmented right now, there's more stores opening up, but as we get to maturation, there's not that much of a difference in inventory between stores. Some right. stores might have exclusives, might have cool brands that other stores don't, but how often are we seeing uh, consumers of a wine industry drive 20 miles to a different city to buy wine from a certain uh, wine store that has uh, a vintage that they're looking for. Yeah. There's sure there's a subsegment of the, of the market that does that, but so the vast majority of, of consumers, they're thinking, what's the closest liquor store to me? Yeah. Because I want a bottle of wine, I'll just pick one off the shelf. The same thing as what we're seeing on the cannabis side here. At first, you had the MedMens of, of, of the U.S. just really popping up and being the Apple stores, but at the end of the day, like we're, we're going down the path of the dry cleaning model where if you're a retailer, it's all about location. How can I, mm-hmm. well, with the foot traffic around me, I'm a local store for local consumers. And I, I shouldn't be thinking of it as, as being the store that everyone wants to come to as soon as they get off of a flight, because that's not a sustainable path forward. Interesting. So like in Colorado right now, for instance, there's just like this huge kind of media focus, I guess, more than anything on all these dispensaries are consolidating and they're over there, you know, counting their stores every single day. And this one has 31 and this one has 28. And, you know, what I see from just being in the market long enough is that I'm like, I've watched half these stores change hands and, you know, they've had five different names on them. And so I think what you're saying is totally kind of what I'm realizing here now is that dispensaries and the retail outlets, not very valuable. You just put a different name on it and the same people still show up. But I think you're right. And that's not really something that I have thought about until now, but distribution. 
yeah, your focus should definitely be on trying to get as much shelf space and in front of as many consumers as possible because that mind share is totally a thing. The brand is definitely a thing. Even Lucy and I, I know we still shop based on brands and we'll go places that have the brand we like. You know, for instance, we were shopping for Evo Lab pins a week ago and we went through, you know, four different dispensaries until we finally found the Evo Lab pin. And so it does lend a lot of credit to it is becoming more of a CPG and a brand based, you know, purchase, I guess, on the consumer part. And, you know, having worked at the cultivation side, I could, you know, I worked in wholesale and I worked as the, the you know, business development guy and the sales guy. And it is a race to the bottom and it's totally, you know, it's hard to differentiate products. And there's always going to be somebody on the flower side, I guess, that has, you know, an exotic strain and a really nice product and sustainable and organic and all these different brand points. But still, consumers are still purchasing based off of, you know, THC potency and, and these kind of arbitrary characteristics of the cannabis that a cultivator can have a hard time, you know, putting in their product. And so I think, um, you know, we yeah. still have a, a ways to go to kind of shake out this market, but you're totally right. I think it is getting more towards, you know, a branded and, and a distribution model. Absolutely. And if you're a retail company right now, uh, listening to this podcast, I'd say the, the way you can get around that is to uh, work with cultivators, either micro cultivators or large scale cultivators to launch your own exclusive brands within the store. So build something, think of yourself as being Lululemon and you want to open up your own stores uh, or the Nike store and you want to open up your own store and you can sell your product through someone else. But when you, when you sell your own product in your own store, you get to clip that margin for yourself instead of giving it to the, the brand. Uh, so just just it's all about thinking outside the box. And as you mentioned, when you walk went to four stores, that that's the kind of experience you want to give to the consumer of saying, "I have the best products. You need to come to me." Uh, and and I have products that you don't see anywhere else, and I have exclusives that are my brand specifically. And you live in the neighborhood, you want to, you want a neighborhood brand. I can you can support a local business there. There's a lot of creative ways you can get it. You can get around that for sure. But then I think like on the flip side of that, so then let's think about the fact that there is so many brands out there. You go to a store. We were just in Vegas. We were at the largest dispensary in the world. What was it called? Oh, Planet 13. And, Planet you know, 13, yeah. Yeah, there was, you know, tons of vapes. And I like just stopped looking because there's just so many. I'm like, this is just ridiculous. So on the flip side of that, how can these companies, you know, especially emerging ones, how can they win over consumers when there is so much competition in the store? That's a great question. Uh, there is a ton of competition in the store. I think there's a, there's an, about 90 new SKUs of products that, that are coming out per week within the cannabis space uh, globally. Uh, so it's, it's a lot of new products that are hitting the consumers. Luckily, so oh, sorry, let me start, take a step back. When you're looking at the different sector segments of the market, uh, vapes, dry flower, pre-rolls, uh, edibles, uh, beverages, what you're seeing in mature states such as Colorado and California is that there's typically five leaders uh, within each of those segments mm -hmm. that capture uh, ab above 50% of the entire market within that state. So five brands have 50% of the market in the entire state. When, when, I say, when, I, when I say that comment, everyone gets scared as a brand. They're like, oh, like, how do I compete against that? Yeah. It's yeah. a mature industry. Well, not so fast. Those five brands are continuously changing. Quarter over quarter, we're seeing different names pop up, huh. names fall off the list. The ones that fall off the list sometimes go bankrupt because they just don't have good unit economics. You can't just look at it in the form of who has the highest revenue. You have to look at it as who has the highest revenue and can sustain it for a long period of time. And it's very hard to do in this industry where consumers want to try everything and they want to do trial and error with everything. So, yeah. so 
there is definitely a lot of opportunity for brands to be out there. And how do they get out there is by just really zoning in on the consumer. Right now, the consumer is looking at THC as being the, the prime differentiator between different products when they walk into a store. We, we know, like anybody who knows cannabis long enough, like I'm, I'm sure you both do, I, I know as well, is that, that THC isn't the be-all, end-all. It is a heuristic that one could use to say, okay, this is what, what, what I'm going to get from the product, but it goes way beyond that. Because if you only look at THC, you're ignoring strains, you're ignoring the terpene profiles, you're ignoring the entourage effect of, of what you're trying. But it is a shortcut. Now, there's, there's, not many, there's not many companies that I know of that I've talked to over the, the 2,200 companies that we've seen at Cape Rivers that really do focus on the consumer, really understanding like, what is it that they like, like, what is it that they're using, take the feedback, change the product, change the supplier, go down another route, really understand like, when do they use the product, why do they use the product, what, makes them, what made them go to the brand versus any other brand. Mm-hmm. Nobody's doing that type of homework out there. Instead, everyone's slapping a, a logo on a product and selling it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Secondly, there's just a lack of focus on what problem you're looking to solve. So a lot of people use cannabis for different reasons. There's a medical use for it. I have, an, I have anxiety. I have depression. I have arthritis. I have cancer. Uh, God forbid. There's just a lot of medical uh, symptoms that a cannabis we know anecdotally can relieve. There's also a lot of uh, recreational needs that, that consumers look for. I want something to relax. I want something to watch TV with. I want to have a report to write, and I need something that makes me concentrate and makes me get creative with it. Mm-hmm. I want to paint something. For, for each of these different use cases, there should be a different brand that just really nails that focus, yeah. like a hyper-focused brand that just says, you know what, I'm going to be a brand that's just meant for creativity. It's meant for artists. It's meant for business people. It's meant for students. It's meant for anybody that just wants to be creative for a period of time. It doesn't make you drowsy. It doesn't make you want to watch TV. It just makes you want to take a, take a piece of paper out and just write notes on it about where you think things are going to go. Mm-hmm. And we, we don't see those types of hyper-focused brands. We see the Coke and Pepsi's trying to come out to be everything for anybody. And, and, and I think uh, that the future of this industry are hyper-focused brands, brands that are, mm-hmm. are, are focused on sleep, brands that are focused yeah. on uh, creativity, brands that are focused on anxiety, brands that are focused on sports and athletics, uh, and, and we're, we're still seeing that emerge. So there's, there's just lots of space for, for companies to, to still form and still go after it. I like that. That's so cool. I like that because uh, I've almost like forgotten kind of the, the crazy creative ideas I had when I was in academics and we were really studying cannabinoids. And I was thinking back then I was really high on CBD, not high on it, but like, you know, like cool. my, <laughs> the prospects of CBD were looking great. Um, and I was thinking at the time, you know, there's all these different ailments and I came from a neuroscience approach to it and studying different things with autism and ADHD and sensory processing disorder. And there's a lot of um, literature about just different cannabinoids. And I always pictured the future of cannabis as being like this, you know, you walk into somewhere and you, you like mix your own products or you find these products that have like specific blends for specific things. And, you know, nowadays you really just see a lot of like THC and, and CBD and, and those types of mix. And there's not a lot of all these different other cannabinoids and other terpenes that are all beneficial. And, and that's totally kind of how I seen the market, you know, five years ago. And then here we are five years later and we're still buying off of, you know, the highest THC potency. And I think um, CBD is definitely coming into the mix. And I think that's helped. But I still think you're totally right. There's a There's a long way to go. And I think as consumers become more educated and, and more kind of tuned in on what's available and what cannabis does and why exactly they're using it, 
I think that's what we'll see the, the evolution of these products. But yeah, man, five years ago, I had big dreams of <laughs> just go pick something up for creativity, like you mentioned, and, and that's it. But there's well, really I'm not. Well, I'm thinking about like 1906. Like they're <laughs> the only ones that I can think of off the top of my head that's doing that. Like you could buy the love and what slow and chill and go. Mm. And those do, they do have specific different effects for you. You're not just walking in there and buying, you know, the pack of chocolate and it's like an et all for, you know, whatever you want to do, like yeah. in the morning or at night, whatever, that's all it is. So I think that that's actually really brilliant that you said that. And I'm assuming you probably, you know, let your companies know that you've invested in to start thinking about that. And that's really how they're going to stand out amongst the crowd moving forward. Yeah, absolutely, and, and and there's just there's just so much out there that that, that, that companies can go and capture, um, and uh, it's not uh, like the, the education we're, we're so far behind of just educating consumers on it. Like I, I see all the time, like when we're looking at sales data, high THC products are just flying off the shelf at low prices. Yeah, and uh, and then the consumers are complaining about the the hangover effect of. I'm groggy the next morning. Well, that's because you didn't pick a hybrid. You picked something with high THC and not right. enough CBD in it. You need that, that balance. And uh, like we, we don't, as, as an industry, we haven't really done a great job of really pulling it all together and, and making and educating the consumer. Uh, and then we don't know over a period of time, like what is real from a medical standpoint and what is anecdotal from, we've heard it from hundreds of people, so it must be true. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, a, it's a lot of weight on the back of brands to say that I need to go out there and educate yeah. my consumer on how the products work. Uh, but, but you just have to do that. You just have to go on the street. Like I still don't understand why uh, there's no brand out there that says, um, you know what, everyone complains about the cannabis products online. Why don't we create something that's from, from using social media that is, is a brand made for the people by the people. Mm-hmm. And if you don't like it, you can just, you can pivot it and the brand will then go and find the product that consumers are looking for. So there's no complaints about this doesn't add up to the black market or the listed market. This, this does like I got my cannabis was too dry or it was too moist or anything of that sort. Just really just zone in on consumers and say, I will take all the feedback. I will be, I'll be open about the feedback that I've received and we'll just keep pivoting the product until we nail it. And we just don't, we just don't see that type of consumer interaction like we do see in highly competitive traditional CPG sectors today. Interesting. So how would you get that data? Like I'm trying to think through it, like surveys or something, or like how are you going to reach these people to figure out all this information? Yeah, that's a great question. Surveys are, are the easiest way to go when you're, you know, very early. As you, as you, as your company matures, you can go into focus groups and spend some more money on consumer insights. Mm-hmm. So there's Google audience that you can use for, for surveys and, if you ask a single question, every single survey result that you get is about, I think, about three cents. So you can really add up the number of uh, survey results that you get. The best companies that we see pitched to us come with a bunch of data. And, and they come with a bunch of data and they have a bunch of data on it. So when they say, we've created a product really meant for sleep, why did you do that? Well, we surveyed 300 people and this is what we found. Gotcha. Well, why did you go down this flavor? Well, we surveyed 400 people and this is what we found. Huh. And they just keep keep pushing data on us. And, and as... As an investor, I love data. I come from the tech industry. Data is our thing. Yeah. Uh, but, but likewise, it's very hard to refute statistics and very hard to refute data. And I get some of it is confirmation bias where uh, the, the brand is picking the data that really suits their story. But there's just there's not enough of that being done. There's too much of the, I love cannabis. I'm a cannabis consumer. 
and I've created a brand and this is my brand and now I'm in market. Yeah. Uh, and that, that just doesn't fly. Like you don't have a differentiating factor by doing that. That's true. Yeah. Well, we appreciate all the, the tips and pointers. I think this was a great conversation, certainly educational for Lucy and I, and I know our, our listeners are going to really enjoy this. Um, we do have a few entrepreneurs listening though. So I'm curious, you know, Narby, what steps should entrepreneurs take to build a strong brand worth investing in? Oh, just, uh, just, just have the passion for it. Understand the consumer around it, uh, of what you're doing and just be completely honest with yourself. Like if you have competitors out there in the market that are biting on your heels or have created a similar product or are outselling you, mention it to your investors. Don't be scared about not talking about your, your competitors. The worst thing that you can do is, is not create that trust with your potential investor and, and not tell them the entire story and have them try to figure that out. Because as an investor, what our, what our goal is is to find people that we can see ourselves working with for a long period of time. So the, the anecdote I always like to use is the average marriage in uh, the U.S. is about uh, 10 and a half years. And the, the average time for a company from founding to an exit by a merger or acquisition or IPO is 10 years as well. So as we invest in companies, when we look across the table to the entrepreneur, as an investor, I need to know that this is, like, I'm getting into a marriage with this person. Uh, in, in that length, and, and I need to know that I can work with this person for that period of time. So if you, if you don't come off as that, then it just doesn't work out. So take a step back and say, if I want to be that type of person for that investor, I need to create a rapport with the investor, a story with the investor, and to talk to the investor a number of times before that, that person will invest in us. Uh, and, and this goes back to our pre-show, pre-show discussion. We're both Gary Vanderchuk fans. Uh, Gary has a book called Jab, 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 Right Hook. And uh, it just says that keep keep giving, 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 and then you can take back over whenever that time comes. We just don't see that enough from the entrepreneurial side of, of companies coming to investors and educating them, not asking for investment. And then when the investment starts, you already have rapport, you already have relationships, yeah. and then it makes the, the whole investment process easier. There you go. That's good stuff right there. Yeah, so just keep grinding it out, have the passion, show the passion. I think even the, the piece before that of, you know, present with data, I think that's a really good selling point. I know when I worked at um, the farm, the main investor at the farm, anytime that we would try to go and do a new direction or do something at the, the farm, you know, they would always say, well, you have to go present Bob with, with data. And it was always a thing, you know, and anytime you present with data and kind of a logical thought process and everything, you know, you, we wanted became realized. And I think that's true in a lot of different areas. I think if you can approach stuff with information and data to back up where you're going, I think that goes a, a long ways, especially in a market where cannabis is new. You know, there's not a lot of data out there. A lot of that data, like we just talked about, you're going to have to create yourself. You're going to have to run surveys. You're going to have to, you know, dive deep into your your processes, you know, learn about your products and then present all that in an appropriate manner. And so I think that's all good stuff, Narbe. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so awesome. much. Yeah, I appreciated that perspective about like the relationships. I didn't really think of it in those terms. Like you are, you are like committing to an investment company and vice versa, you know, for, you know, the long haul, 10, 5, 10, 15 years. And so you want to be able to have that trust level and that transparency between both parties. So I think that that was really an important tip as well. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much for everything and for chatting with us. We love, you know, talking to our Canadian neighbors. So this was fun and we appreciate it. 
great. Thanks for having me. Really, really appreciate it as well. All right, you guys. With that, I'm lit. I'm lucid. And that's it. Laters.